I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I was almost tempted to uh, to introduce you by saying, oh, hi, Mark, given that we're here to talk about Netflix. <laughs> uh, you're, you're back home in Santa Cruz at the moment. Do you uh, still head out for a morning surf? Or? Uh, I do. It's not quite as uh, frequent as it used to be because I've been traveling so much getting the book out. But yes, uh, I try and get outside one way or the other almost every day. Fantastic. And um, we do have a, a book to talk about today, That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and The Amazing Life of an Idea. But um, before we get into that, I have to ask, what kind of board are you writing nowadays? Uh, I just, uh, I'm still trying to deny the fact that I'm 61 years old. Uh-huh. And so I'm on a 7-2 these days. Okay. Yep. But- these days, uh, as you know, I hope you know, you mm-hmm. know, they've done amazing things by being able to have these huge, high volume short boards. Yes. So yes. easy to paddle, easy to get into waves, but then they behave like a short board when you're on the wave. So yeah. it's really kind of a, a revelation. Yeah. I just, I, I'm still in denial. I just don't want to go to a longboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's something I mean about those nine foot boards that are literally just hovering way above you as you hold them upright. They just they just don't look anywhere near as cool as that board that you just tuck under your under your arm, right? You feel like you're in the '60s when you have one of those yeah. huge, massive, massive slabs. Exactly, exactly. So, um, as I said, we're here to talk about your awesome new book that will never work. Here it is for our video audience. Um, before Netflix, though, Mark, I mean, you used to uh, hitch a ride with. Now CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, to work because his company, uh, Integrity, oh, Pure Atria, had purchased your company, Integrity QA. And um, on these drives, you would pitch him all sorts of business ideas, some good, some perhaps not so great. I mean, what were some of these initial ideas you'd pitch him on those drives to work? Well, you know, people think that Netflix uh, sprang forth fully formed. Like we had, had this idea at the very beginning, it was going to be video, and then I was some kind of video aficionado. But really, at that time, which was back in 1997, all I knew is I wanted to sell something on the internet. Mm-hmm. That was as far as it went. And so when Reed Hastings and I were carpooling back and forth to work, the ideas that we threw around were actually pretty ridiculous. You know, one of them was. Uh, custom dog food mm-hmm. formulated for your pet. Uh, another was custom shampoo that we did by mail. I had an idea to do vitamins. I did a lot of research into uh, computer controlled lathes that could make custom baseball bats. Um, you, you see a theme here. Yes. I mean, I really, I really wanted to use the internet for what I felt it was naturally suited to, which was e-commerce, but also personalization, like being able to say, I can do something different for every individual customer. Mm. And we just had to find that uh, that right idea. And, you know, one of those equally crazy ideas, if not more crazy, was video rental by mail. Yeah. Can yep. we figure out a way to do video rental, but from a internet website? Mm-hmm. And what was the initial sort of seed of that idea or, or the trigger that prompted that idea in the first place? 
Uh, Just to jump right into it, it was not like, oh my gosh, a late fee on a movie. It was a little more mercenary than that, in that we were, you know, Amazon was now about almost two years old. And at the time, they were only a bookstore. And so we were kind of looking for other big categories that might be well suited to bring online like Jeff Bezos had brought books on. Mm-hmm. And we looked at music and we looked at selling video, uh, you know, uh, selling movies. But then we kind of cast our eye on video rental because it was so big. It was an $8 billion market. But probably the more interesting thing is that we really believed that the existing model for video rental, which was going to a blockbuster by and large, um, was flawed was unsatisfactory that people hate well unsatisfactory people hated it uh blockbuster had as one of the core tenets of its business model something they called managed dissatisfaction mm-hmm. and so it's pretty attractive to enter an eight billion dollar cattle category where the incumbent manages their business on a principle called managed dissatisfaction yeah which is Quite a way away from uh, the way most technology companies build their businesses these days in terms of customer experience and putting the customer at the heart of everything they do. And if you have a lousy experience, they do absolutely everything to resolve that more often than not. Um, and I can't speak of every single company, of course, but my experience with a lot of tech companies nowadays is, oh, you had a bad experience, we'll refund your money. Um, it's about doing absolutely everything to ensure that net promoter score stays high rather than managing that dissatisfaction, um, which was at the core of Blockbuster's model. Um, but one thing you touched on there, which I think is really worth double clicking on, so to speak, is, uh, you know, you had so many ideas, you know, personalized baseball bats, personalized dog food, but that is essentially the, the essence of creativity is having many at bats, if you will, because it's not that we wake up one day with a great idea. Uh, absolutely. In fact, the more that I've learned about um, all the steps you can take to turn an idea into reality is you're right. That it's the idea doesn't count. Mm. Most ideas are bad ones. Mm-hmm. And the real entrepreneurial skill these days is how clever can you be about figuring out quick and easy and cheap ways yes. to test things? How many things can you try? And, and that was a, a hard lesson for us. Mm. You know, th- there was this point that uh, I, I, we can go back to get to the beginning of this, but just jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah. Once we actually had started doing DVD rental by mail, um, the idea that everybody said that won't work, uh, it turned out it was a terrible idea that, mm-hmm. in fact, it didn't work. Um, and we were desperately flailing about trying to figure out some way to make video rental by mail work. And, you know, and at first, uh, each of these tests that I was doing were big. They took, you know, weeks to put them together because we had to have custom photography and we'd have to have the copy perfect and everything spell checked and stress test the site and all that crap. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, the test would not work. It would fail. And we'd have totally wasted two or three weeks. And so then we'd go faster and we'd do a test in two weeks and then faster and do a test in a week and then pretty soon a test every other day. And then pretty soon we were testing things two or three times a day. And this is way before like optimizely and being able to do quick A-B testing. Everything had to be done by hand. Um, And so things were pretty shitty. You know, there was this spellings and the wrong image and watermarks and Greek pages were still Greek. Yeah. Um, 
but there's this revelation that it didn't make a difference. Mm. That no matter how crappy the if there was a crappy idea, then even this perfect test didn't work. But if it was a good idea, then no matter how bad it was, people did it. It yeah. was this insight that you had to just jam things as fast as you could mm-hmm. to hopefully stumble on something that someone liked. Yeah, and uh, I mean that's obviously quite pervasive nowadays in terms of the startup ecosystem that hold build, measure, learn, speed being fundamental to innovation. But back then in the late 90s, it was still very much a new way of thinking. Um, most companies still kind of embodied that sort of 20th century management mindset, which is let's plan and then let's execute. And then fingers crossed it works. But Netflix was one of the first companies that really adopted that short feedback loop. And back at a time when you didn't have Optimizer, you didn't have, you know, landing pages and Google Analytics and, and whatnot that you could just set up overnight and, um, just constantly be A-B testing different things. It was a lot harder back then, um, to, to do what you did, um, which I think is fantastic. But, um, you know, nowadays, uh, Netflix has over 150 million subscribers. But when you kicked off initially looking to, uh, deliver VHS by mail, I mean, you guys started off with all sorts of calamities. I mean, on launch day, there was a server crash amongst other things. And, um, you know, nowadays Netflix has gone on to essentially embody an entire generation, the whole Netflix and, and chill mantra, but it essentially started with you pitching your mom for early stage investment. So these are very humble beginnings. Yeah, it's true. I mean, if people think that it's, you know, especially um, other countries who never saw the whole DVD, DVD stage. Yeah. Um, but all, people feel, oh, Netflix has always been around. It must have become this big corporation, spun off some, some other corporation. But no, you know, we did start extremely humbly mm. you know you refer to the server crashes that's because we had one server mm-hmm. um, there was nothing in the cloud we Those literally AWS. had <laughs> no we had a Dell PC in a rack in the corner of the room and when that failed it was like oh I guess we might need more than one of those. Mm. So you have to drive down and buy another one, install it in the rack, configure it, and try it again, and that crashes. And and this put the rack in the corner of the room in case you're thinking that's some big air-conditioned, climate-controlled uh, server room. It's not. It's the crappy bank building that we had our first offices in with mm. this old green carpet we couldn't afford to replace with no furniture except for card tables, you know, folding tables. Yeah. We, brought, we brought our own furniture from home. There was this, um, <laughs> my wife came in one afternoon and we're talking and all of a sudden she looks, looks away and goes, wait, are those our dining room chairs? Which I had, of course, stolen yes. to put around our conference table. I mean, there was nothing. It was uh, a long, lean period of truly being a startup. Mm. Yeah. And despite that long, lean period of truly being a startup, of using your dining room chairs as conference room chairs, you got to a point where Jeff Bezos of Amazon was interested in acquiring Netflix. And this was before Netflix was the Netflix we know and love today. It was at a point when you were struggling to determine how you turn it into a sustainable business model and when most of your revenues actually came from uh, video sales as opposed to rentals. And that was a space that Amazon was going to muscle in on and essentially take over. So you would have been left holding a hot potato and Amazon just said, hey, we want to give you a lifeline. And despite all of that, you said, no, we're good. I mean, where did that conviction come from to turn them down despite the challenges you were facing? Well, the conviction came out of ignorance, to be honest, Uh Uh, because they happened, Jeff Bezos happened to call at this perfect moment for us. 
Uh, it really was very, was very early. I mean, this was within three months of launching the site. And so in our mind, all the hard work was done. You know, we had spent six months building this simple website and putting in place the infrastructure to actually run one. We had gone through all the efforts of acquiring every single DVD available. Mm-hmm. We had put all the content in. We had gotten these deals with DVD manufacturers to put cards in their boxes so that we actually had an inflow of customers. So we had everything in place except for any knowledge of how it was going to work. So had he called three to six months later, once we realized, oh, my God, this is terrible. No one's renting from us. Uh It might have been different. But as it was, Reed Hastings and I flew up to Seattle uh, because when Jeff Bezos calls, you know, you go. I mean, even though Mm -hmm. back then that all they were selling was books and it became clear that you're correct. He was looking to jumpstart his entry into video and thought maybe I could use these guys. But um when he made an offer, uh, and it was he, they described that it was going to be in the low eight figures, which means barely eight figures. So we figured it was probably going to be fourteen to sixteen million dollars. Um, we didn't have to think too hard. I mean, on one hand, you know, I owned about thirty percent of the company, so five million dollars would have been pretty great for mm-hmm. you know less than a year's work. But on the other hand, we had spent all this time getting the site ready getting this whole business ready. We were finally ready to start and we weren't quite ready to let someone else take over. Yeah. Uh, So in in many ways, even though it was a trip up ostensibly to think about selling the company, it ended up being more like a, uh, like a commitment ceremony Mm. where Reed and I had to look each other in the eye and said, wow, we can get out. Do we want to? And we said, no. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to be said about, uh, like you said, in the, uh, the, the get-go, ignorance and, and naivety. I mean, that oftentimes precedes most ideas that will never see light of day if someone was just looking at things completely rationality, rationally at all times and doing the numbers. And if the numbers don't stack up, that's why you often see large organizations nowadays that they don't innovate because for them, they're looking for the short-term return. They're looking for the numbers to make sense. And something like Netflix and DVD by mail just would not make sense. And it requires that naivety, that ignorance, and that sort of crazy self-belief to just give it a shot. Yeah, I think when someone says that'll never work, you kind of take it as a challenge rather mm. than as a, uh, a shutdown. Yeah. And, and so after um, you turned down the Amazon offer, uh, you, you basically, that was your commitment ceremony with Reed. And you said, okay, we're doing this and we need to do the DVD or video by uh, video rental as opposed to video sale because Amazon's going to muscle in on that space. So we've got to get the rental thing right. Otherwise our business is doomed. Um, so you essentially had to cannibalize most of your revenues at the time by giving up the video sales division and doubling down on rental where you had what was like one percent or two percent of your revenues at the time. Two um, percent. Yeah, I mean, that's that takes a lot of balls because what I see a lot of startups nowadays do, they might have like a revenue generator. They might have a service business on the side. And that kind of reminds me of what Nassim Taleb, the philosopher, says. The two biggest addictions in life are heroin and a weekly salary. And it's no different. <laughs> it's no different for a company. Right. And you've got that weekly salary coming in, which was your video sales service, and you decided to kill it. Man, talk me through the thought process at the time. So, you know, we kind of recognized that uh, selling DVDs was a kind of a dead end. Mm. I mean, not soon, 
because at that point, we were probably the only place in the world, really, where you could find every single DVD. There just weren't places selling it. Certainly no stores were selling it. So it was a healthy business, but we knew it just a matter of time before not just Amazon, but everyone else began selling DVDs, and then we're, we're toast. Mm-hmm. Um, and rental, nothing. You know, nobody was renting. If they yeah. rented from us once, they wouldn't come back again. But the thing is, the thing that drove the decision wasn't us saying, oh, sales are going to go away and rentals the future. It was that doing both of them at the same time was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, doing the sales was making it even less likely we'd make the rental successful. And obviously, the big one was focus. All the time we would spend on the 98% of the revenue was time we weren't spending figuring out rental. But there was also conflicts, like some of the movies you could sell, some you could rent, some you could do both. Uh, we tried to describe who we were. It was confusing. The checkout was confusing. Uh, the operations, the financing, the reporting. And we finally kind of threw up our hands and said, listen, we're spending all this time trying to reconcile two different businesses if we're really going to figure figure it out, we've got to go all in, yeah. remove all possible complexities, and focus. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it was it was terrifying to in one day walk away from ninety eight percent of your revenue. But on the other hand, it does have a way of uh, focusing you. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess that aligns <laughs> with. Mild- Yeah, I guess that aligns with uh, Warren Buffett and and folks like that say where it's about saying no to almost everything so you can focus on the things that actually matter. Otherwise, you'll just find yourself spread very thin and not kicking goals in any space, just being ultimately mediocre across everything. And um, I know after a couple of years of hustling with with Netflix, you essentially got to a breakthrough. Like you said, there was a lot of A-B testing. There was uh, trying, uh, well, testing whether or not subscriptions would work. But there was ultimately a breakthrough moment where it was kind of like a, a hybrid model that started to gain traction. What did that look like? So, first of all, as you know, when you're testing things, it's kind of a, a basic premise of testing that you don't test two or three big things all at the same time mm-hmm. in a single test. Because if one component was wildly successful, one was wildly unsuccessful, and one was neutral, the whole thing comes out neutral, and you have no idea. Yeah. And we had these three big things. And one, of course, was this no due dates, no late fees. Mm-hmm. Let customers keep DVDs as long as they want. When they're done, they send it back and give them another one. And the other one was subscription, you know, billing them monthly. And the last one was having them have a list of, creating a list of movies in advance. So movies got shipped automatically. And I was going, I have 20 years in direct marketing experience before I even got into the technology industry. And so I was going, we cannot test those three things simultaneously. And Reed, unburdened, of course, by a background in direct marketing, Mm -hmm. was going, why are we wasting time doing these sequentially? Let's just get it over with and throw them all together and see what happens. And eventually I gave in and we rolled them together into one program. And I must admit, amazingly to me, it worked and it worked phenomenally well. The combination of those three things was a whole new way of consuming video. And that that very moment really marked the point where a year and a half in, we had finally like cracked the code. Yeah. We had something new that not only did customers like and, and in fact love, but they would actually pay more for it than it cost us to do it. 
which back in that time was actually a pretty rare thing in the in e-commerce. Yeah, it's it's funny because um you know most people associate experience with making better decisions, but you've just talked through a, a great example whereby your twenty years of experience in marketing. <laughs> would have actually sabotaged you and forced you to make perhaps not the most optimal decision. And maybe if we, if you went forward with that, then maybe Netflix wouldn't exist today the way it does. You know, that's part of, I mean, part of me writing that will never work was to debunk some of the myths that surround company formation, mm -hmm. that somehow I was so gifted and visionary that I immediately saw the path to 150 million subscribers. Yeah. And that's bullshit. So there's so much luck mm -hmm. um, involved in this. I mean, there's things you can do. You know, luck is this preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. So luck is partly also saying if it breaks my way, am I ready? Or if it breaks against me, am I prepared? But nonetheless, if DVD hadn't taken off, we're toast. Mm -hmm. If Blockbuster had responded differently, we're toast. If we had tested it, if those three tests had actually been net wash, we're toast. But lo and behold, things go well, and uh, yeah, and there we are. Yeah, and I mean, as you say, the more you do the work, the more likely you are to have a quote unquote lucky outcome. Uh, yes. But luck always plays a part, but so does uh, experience, persistence, especially, I think, is the big one. And that's something um, I, I often quote Calvin Coolidge on this podcast, the former U.S. president, who said nothing in this world will take the place of um, persistence. Talent will not. Genius will not. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence alone is omnipotent. And I think it's just so true, especially in that startup game, particularly because you're dealing with so much uncertainty around your business models, your customers and so on. There is just so much uncertainty that you can't sit, you can't sit there and plan out your 50 page business plan and then execute and think, well, we're going to make it. This is all good. Look at these projections. Look what they say about how much money we're going to make in seven years time. It just doesn't work that way. No business plan survives first contact with the customer, as you've said. Absolutely right. It's, it, it has been really, it's it, not overthinking it, not thinking about it at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, have an idea. As soon as you can, try it, collide it with reality. That's, that's how it goes, yeah. especially when you're doing something that no one's done before and no one knows if it's going to work. So what are we going to argue about? What are we going to research? What are we going to write up? What a lot of bullshit. Just start. Take that first step. Yep. You can't see around the corner. Don't spend an hour looking for a telescope. Take two steps forward. Now see what you can see. Yep. 100%. See, see more. Take two more steps. Yep. 100%. It's kind of like rock climbing, right? I mean, sometimes if you go rock climbing, <laughs> you, you've got your, your hands up there. You can't really see where the next peg is, but you just need to back yourself. You just need to pull up and you feel it. And then that allows you to move up with your feet as well. But unless you do that, unless you back yourself, you're just not going to get up there. And taking that step just reveals the path as you go. I use that analogy all the time. Seriously, I use rock climbing because there's these stages. Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates okay venture returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show.
is the rock climbing, which as you say, one is um, you can see top to bottom from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, I can see the whole route. Great. Uh, but the next level up is you can't see the whole route, but it's easy enough that you can up climb and down climb. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I have a few picks. If you up, see what I see? Easy enough to down climb. Where, where it gets really entrepreneurial is when you, A, can't see the whole route, and B, it's too hard to down climb. Mm-hmm. Now you have to have the balls to go, I'm going to do the first four or five moves and see what I see. <laughs> Knowing <laughs> there's no way of going back. And trusting that I'll be able to see it better. And that is what a startup is. It's being willing to take those first four or five moves and see what you see. Yeah. It's a great analogy. It is a great analogy. Um, so you did that, uh, touch on Blockbuster a few moments ago and when we were talking about luck. And ultimately, you rejected Amazon and then Blockbuster shortly thereafter rejected you. And they turned down the opportunity to buy Netflix for 50 million US dollars. And nowadays, Netflix's market cap hovers between 120 and 180 billion, depending on how the market's going. I mean, what can you tell us about that exchange with with the execs over at Blockbuster? Well, it's it's funny because we were just talking a moment ago about how we had finally figured out this no due dates, no late fees thing, and it was working amazingly well. But it was confusing. I mean, no due dates, no. How does that work? Yeah. And so, based on all my, uh, two of my early startups before Netflix were magazines. So I knew a lot about magazine subscription business, uh, you know, negative option, the billing, the whole thing, how they behaved. Um, and and so we go, we'll do first month free. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden it takes off. And on one hand, we're so excited because we're getting in hundreds, if not thousands of orders a day. We're going, oh, my gosh, it's taking off. But the other side of you goes, Every one of those new orders is taking, costing me $50. And because it's subscription, I'm not going to recover that money for a year or a year and a half. So we're going broke being successful. Mm-hmm. And worst of all, this was the fall of the year 2000. So I, I don't know whether you, whether you uh, lived through that, but that was the tail end of the dot-com bubble. Mm-hmm. It was the last bits of air were streaming out. And whereas if this had happened a year ago, that was the kind of atmosphere where we could go out on the Highway 17, which is the big highway that connects Silicon Valley to Santa yeah. Cruz. And you, you see the big trucks all full of money and you just flag one and they pull off and they back up and they dump all the money into the driveway and you get everyone out with the pitchforks and the wheelbarrows. That's how it worked. But now... I mean, now it was like if they saw you waving, they'd all put their heads, they'd look away and just drive past you. Mm-hmm. So we, I'm sorry, that was a long segue, but no, we were screwed. Yeah. We are screwed being too successful. So when you're screwed, you, you do that thing uh, that people talk about calling per, uh, pursue strategic alternatives, which is in that same category as uh, I'm going to – I'm leaving to spend more time with my family. Uh-huh. It, it, and both of them mean you're really you're screwed. Yeah. Um, uh, and so for us, the strategic alternative was Blockbuster, and we began pestering them to um, help us to give us a meeting. Um, for months, called them, e- emailed them, used go-betweens, and nothing because they were six billion dollars and we were six million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, like yes, they called. They said we'll meet you, and we go. We are saved. And on the plane going to Dallas, we're kind of saying, this is perfect. 
they, how can they not see how beautiful this is? Like, we'll join these forces. They'll, we'll run the online. They'll do the stores. They'll promote us in their 9,000 stores. Mm-hmm. We'll find the way to kind of do a combined service of online. It was great. And we pitched them, and they kind of got excited, too. And then they asked how much we wanted to pay for them. Um, they should pay for us. And Reed said $50 million. And that didn't go over quite as well. They, uh, they, they laughed at us. Um, but the great thing about that moment was that we had flown there thinking that we'd finally found the, you know, the deus ex machina that was going to save us. The hand was going to come from the heavens and pull us away from danger. Um, but it didn't. And we flew back saying, okay, we're not going to get out of this. We're not going to be able to get around this. Um, and as my dad used to tell me, you know, sometimes the only way out is through and that we would have to figure this out on our own. Mm. And sometimes that's like the, the most galvanizing force because, I mean, a lot of people I've spoken to on this podcast, whether they're entrepreneurs or famous comedians, say they didn't have a plan B. And that's what forced them to just go all in. So Blockbuster was your plan B. And once you lost that, you just had to say, okay, well, we've really got to figure this stuff out now. That's right. And you say, okay, we don't have an option to find the obvious choice. Now we've got to find the unobvious choice. Yep. 100%. So, um, I mean, turning down Bezos early on wasn't the only tough decision you had to make personally. Uh, a couple of years into Netflix's uh, trajectory as a, as a business, you decided that, well, it wasn't you that decided, it was Reed who perhaps suggested that he should take over as CEO and that you should vacate that position of the company that you started and that was essentially your baby in many respects. Um, what can you tell us about the what went through your mind and why you decided to step aside um, and take on the role of, of president, I believe? Yeah, well, it, it was a, a surprising moment because I was so heads down on... Mm solving all these problems and then one night of course i was in my office must have been five or six p.m you know not that late but reed pokes his head in which is unusual because he didn't work at the company then you know he was the chairman of the board but he had another job in san jose um and he goes we've got to talk uh and comes in holding his laptop computer and flips it open and begins giving me a powerpoint slideshow uh and it starts off nicely enough where it's kind of – he's going through all the things I had done well. But, of course, then you're kind of going, oh, boy, where is this going? It's a shit sandwich. <laughs> there you go. And he was building that first layer of bread. And then, of course, he begins putting the shit down. And in a nutshell, that he was concerned about my leadership. And he's kind of outlining some of the things he'd seen, the smoke he'd seen where he was worried there'd be fire later. And mm-hmm. I go, read. I'm not going to sit here and let you pitch me on how I suck. And he goes, no, no, that's not it. Um, And he closed the computer and said, I'm not here telling you suck. I'm telling you, I think we would, this company would be much stronger if we ran it together. If, and uh, he goes, I'll come in and we will do it together. Uh, But he was proposing he come in as CEO and that I make room and slide over and become president. And after that was passed and I sat for a few hours in the office and then went home and we had a bottle of wine to my wife on the porch. Um, I had to really think about that. 
because Reed and I had this relationship that had been from the start totally honest with each other. We never sugarcoated the truth. We never blurred our criticism, softened our criticism out of the fear of hurting someone's feelings. I knew Reed didn't have an ulterior motive that he genuinely believed it would be stronger with both of us. And I, I had to agree. Mm. And ultimately that night I decided that he was right, um, that it would be better. But it meant kind of parsing apart the dream that I had, you know, the dream of being the CEO of yeah. a successful company. But I kind of realized it wasn't my dream to decide anymore. That the dream, you know, for all the people who were coming in and working late and, you know, missing family time. And it was their dream, too. And the same with the investors. They had expectations. They dreamed about this. And I decided I really had to say, that's OK. I don't need to be CEO. The more important thing is the company be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a while to adjust to it, but it didn't take that long. And I, I really believe that when Reed came in and we ran the company together, that in many ways was like the renaissance at Netflix. So many of the big accomplishments, so much of the progress came from those next few years. Mm. You know, certainly figuring out the the no due dates, no late fees came after that. Uh, the personalization algorithm came after that. The dynamic website, our relationships with the studios. All those things happened when we were solving problems together. And then, wow, since I left, you know, and he's run the company on his own. What an amazing uh, piece of progress we've seen there. So, you know, if I go back and kind of look, what was the best decision I ever made as CEO? It arguably was deciding it made sense to have Reed come in and join me. Yeah, well, that requires a lot of humility. And um, like you say in your book, nobody writes books about just surviving. So it sounds like, well, it definitely was a good decision based on at least the measures of success that are obvious to everyone else, which is market cap and total uh, subscribers around the world nowadays. Um so um, something that is quite celebrated is uh, Netflix's culture. Um, and I know Patty McCord, your ex-colleague, also released a book recently called Powerful about the culture at Netflix. And, um, you know, Netflix has always been characterized as having this culture where people, well, you have, firstly, you have great people on the bus, but they also have the freedom to make decisions, to screw up, to fix that and to move forward, um, which is kind of the opposite of what you find in most organizations once they get past a certain headcount, it's process and control, and nobody can do anything without summoning a steering committee meeting. I mean, how did Netflix navigate that delicate balance as the organization got bigger and more successful? That's, that is the challenge. It's that as you get bigger and more successful, because you know every startup starts that way. Mm-hmm. There is just too much to do. You have you know, we had a dozen people, but you could use a hundred people. And so there is no time for me to, you know, go, Steve, all right, do this and then do that. And then here's how you do this. If you see this, here's how to respond to it. And then on Friday, I want your status report. Uh-huh. All you can really do is go, okay, Steve, see that mountaintop over there? I'll meet you there in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And here's what you've got to have ready when you get there. And I trust that you're going to figure it out. You're going to bump into stuff you didn't expect. You're going to have to change and adjust, change your route. And I'm not going to be there. I trust you to achieve what you need to achieve. But I'm giving you the total freedom to do it your own way. Uh, And that's easy, as you point out, when you have a dozen 
it's really hard when you have a hundred. It's even harder when you have seven hundred, and, and, and Netflix is seven thousand now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the cultural achievement and accomplishment of Netflix is that they scaled it. And the reason is that all startups start out that way with this wonderful culture. But what happens is all of a sudden you begin at the beginning, you have 12 people who are amazing, who can all do that. Then you begin hiring people and you, you're not as careful or you just can't tell. And people begin making mistakes. And what you do is go, okay, we'll put some guardrails in. Mm-hmm. So check in with me uh, at that first third and second third and give me the status report. And then you get more lax and all of a sudden you're putting even more guardrails and more checks and balances. And the problem you have there is all of a sudden all the people who are really talented, who could make it three weeks, figuring on the way and show up, not just what they're expected, but with even more, they go, this sucks. You, you trust me to have a $30 million um, uh, piece of the business, but you don't trust my judgment about whether I should travel on a $300 ticket or a $500 ticket. Yeah. And what does that say? And Netflix went the opposite way. They said, rather than build a business with all these guardrails to protect us from people with poor judgment, what would happen if we only had people here with good judgment and took away all the guardrails? Um, and it's really been this amazing cultural experiment in doing that. Mm. You know, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with their, you're probably familiar with their um, policies. Yes, the culture deck and and whatnot. Uh, yeah, but not just that, but just, you know, the, their expense policy is there isn't oh, yes. one. Yes. Their the vacation policy, no there policy, isn't one. Yep. Isn't one. It's, it's all four words. It's all use your best judgment. Um, and that is designed for to be lo- that's what attracts people to want to work someplace is to be respected and trusted. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's hard. And you, cause you can't, when you, you know, when you're hot, when you're interviewing someone, you can't tell, uh, you, you, it's impossible. And so you have to hire someone and recognize quickly, this may not be working mm. or the business changes. And the mm. person who was indispensable because you were doing something critical that they could only do. Now you don't need that anymore. And you have to go, why do I have this person it doesn't make sense. So we have to be polite and be part as friends and go on. Yeah. So it sounds like trust and I mean, trust being a byproduct of having really great people who uh, values align with the organization. That is at the absolute core of this model, if you will, this culture. Um, and doing so now in terms of Netflix being this big company that it is, I know they pay at the top of the market, but for say early stage entrepreneurs listening to this who want to build that culture, but who perhaps can't afford to pay a top of market. I know you were quite instrumental in getting people to leave jobs where they were getting paid twice as much to join Netflix when you were still a VHS rental company and had absolutely no idea what you were doing, but you had this way of getting the best people on the bus despite these challenges. How? So you you you're missing the picture somewhat if you believe okay. the reason that Netflix has the people they have is because they pay them well. Yes, they that's pay one, them that's well. One reason, one reason. It's, yes, it's it, it's it's a piece of it. Yes, but it's fundamentally not the biggest piece. Of course. And you know, there's a story I tell in the book about uh, Patty McCord you mentioned, mm-hmm. and I worked together at a previous company called Borland International, a big software company. At one point, big competitor to Microsoft. 
Uh, but Microsoft did to Borland what we did to Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. But at the time, big corporate campus, tennis courts, Olympic-sized swimming pool, cafeteria, squash courts, all that stuff, and a hot tub. And one time, Patty and I were coming back from lunch, and we saw these engineers in the hot tub. And we went by to say hello. And as we walked up, they were complaining about the company. Uh-huh. And we said, what is wrong with this picture? that they're in the hot tub complaining. But as we thought about it, the insight was that it wasn't about that. It wasn't about the squash courts and it wasn't about the kombucha on tap or the nap pods or the beanbag chairs and all the crap that people seem to think that if they sprinkle these things, it's going to make it a great place to work. What makes it a great place to work is feeling you're respected. Mm -hmm. What makes it a great place to work is having the freedom to solve your own problems, your own ways, because you're the closest one to the problem and to have the responsibility to actually be doing something which is key to the company. That is the powerful thing. And people leave jobs that pay more to take jobs that let them do that. They stay at those jobs. The most powerful thing you can do is give something, someone great work to do, give them a, a boss who they respect and who treats them with respect. That's the most powerful yeah, thing. Yeah, and that's something that aligns with what um, Dan Pink writes about in his book Drive, which is about the science of human motivation, where he says, look, once you cover people's basic needs of sustenance and pay, what really matters to them is uh, mastery, learning, improving as they go, autonomy, so having that freedom that you talked about, and purpose, really believing that what this organization is working towards matters and it gets them out of bed every morning with a spring in their step. Otherwise, ping pong tables and you know masseuses that visit you during your lunch break and whatnot, that doesn't matter. It's kind of, it's kind of like what um, Jason Freed of Basecamp talks about. He says, you know, we don't send fruit to our employees' desks. We send it to their homes because we want them to, to go home and spend time with their families as well. It's not about keeping them in the office and having all these perks in the office. So they just sit on their desks for, you know, 14 hours a day, essentially. Yeah, it's it's like money and happiness. That after a certain level, they don't correlate. To each, they don't necessarily correlate. Yeah. I mean, you can have all the money in the world and be miserable. They're two separate axes. And it's the same thing that the real thing is this meaningful work. And mm-hmm. listen, you can have meaningful work and get paid well, like in Netflix, or meaningful work and have the kombucha on tap. Great. The flaw is thinking... I'm not uh, a good enough manager to provide this person with meaningful work and true freedom and responsibility. So I'm going to make up for it mm-hmm. by spending money on the ping pong table. That's that's the flaw. Yeah, it's just window dressing. It's 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 the icing without yeah. the cake, essentially. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, success ultimately breeds complacency, Mark. And you know, Netflix is now. Well, 20 plus years into its, its history as a company and it's still firing on, on all cylinders, albeit with, with a, a number of threats coming from other streaming services and uh, changes in the landscape around content licensing and all sorts of stuff. But, um, you know, something that's high performing tech companies embody is this notion that it's always day one, that we never become complacent. Um, what do you think has kept Netflix constantly challenging its own business model as well. I mean, they they didn't rest on their laurels with streaming video. They decided to start creating their own content because they needed to. Otherwise, they'd be at the mercy of the film studios who could then just license their content to someone else. Was this something that was developed early on while you were still in the company or did this come later? I think it's it's the exact same emotion that drove us to say, 
even though DVD sales is paying 98% of our salaries, that's not what the future is. Mm -hmm. And then any efforts we're spending on supporting and preserving this legacy built business that is interfering with our ability to get the future right. That has continued on, and we've seen it time and time again. And we've seen it when the Netflix originally transitioned from um, DVDs to streaming, is that they made this conscious decision that we're not going to be reverse compatible. We're mm -hmm. not going to worry about, oh, do they do the same movies available? No, forget it. We're going to focus everything on the streaming and let the DVD go where it is. That's the attitude that makes you successful. And that's what's making Netflix able to keep responding because it's never about protecting its flank. It's by trying to see where do we have to be and taking all their effort to be there. And conversely, in my opinion, it is what sinks all the entrenched uh, market leaders mm -hmm. is so many of them can see the future. They can see it's going in a direction that is not good for them. But yet they do not have the courage or the ability or the willingness to do the things that may hurt or impact their legacy business. Yeah. And part of it's the market. Part of it is the whole fact they're driven by quarter to quarter earnings and they cannot do these things because their stock price drops. But then look at what Jeff Bezos does, who basically has said from the very first before he went public. If you're interested in profits, if you're interested in getting quarter to quarter performance, do not buy this stock. This company is not going to be run that way. And, and so they are an example of how a company can continue to innovate and move forward. But there's so many other companies which do the exactly the opposite. Yeah. They're terrified of anything which might impact their past. Mm. And, and I think it all ties in with what we've been talking about, about culture, about having the right people on the bus, about giving them the freedom to do great work and empowering them with worthwhile missions. And that just then becomes a bit of a virtuous cycle because then you have an organization of high caliber people. Um, and then that just attracts more quality people to the organization because great people want to work with great people. A players want to work with A players. Um, and, and therefore you're far more likely to succeed when the rug gets pulled out from underneath you or when the market starts to change. Whereas organizations where we're essentially just executing on process and having lots of meetings and trying to shuffle people around, even if you wanted to respond, it would be very difficult with the types of people you'd have on the bus in these incumbents that you speak of. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a natural progression is that all of a sudden you begin going, wow, like, for example, you go, wow, this no due dates, no late fees thing is working and it's working for six months in a row and a year in a row. We better get some people in here to help us with our efficiency and our process. And you bring this different crew of people in who are incredible at shaving margin and shortening supply chain. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon your whole company is full of people who are incredibly good at that. And I'm not knocking them. They're so much better than that. But they're really good at taking the exact same thing we've always done and making it better. They're terrible when all of a sudden the world changes and you've got to go back to saying, let's just try shit. They, they, they can't do that. Yeah. Um, and so these companies, even though you have the leadership is going, we have to be willing to move faster. They can't help it. They have 98% of the passengers on the, uh, of the crew in the boat are, uh, 
unable to do that. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a delicate dance that a lot of listed companies have to uh, partake in and, and ultimately be very forthright with the way they approach their, their companies and the way they approach building their companies, as you said, with Jeff Bezos from day one saying, look, we're not about the short-term returns, we're about the long-term returns. Selling the vision, telling the story, inspiring people to get on board. I think Musk has done similar things over at Tesla as well. Um, but if people want their short-term returns, you're better off backing, you know, a, uh, AT&T or some, you know, traditional organization that's going to give you safe, small, incremental yields, and that's it. That's it. You know, what's kind of amazing is that all the stuff we've been talking about for the last, you know, 40, 50 minutes is obvious. (laughs) Obvious is the wrong word. Known, established. Um, All the things that I've talked about that we did, quite rightly, you're going, oh, yeah, this is this. That's the beauty of this. It's not magic. Mm -hmm. Um, Reed and I are not magicians. We just were persistent. We tried things and we had the courage to keep on going. And and in so many ways, that is what this book, I think, celebrates is that this is not this look how amazing I was. In some ways, it's this look how average I was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have some things I'm good at, but for the most part, the things that I learned and the things that we talk about in the book are really things that almost anyone can figure out how to do. And more importantly, it's trying to let people know why they should do it. It's not to try and get rich because it's extremely unlikely. It's not to be famous. That's extremely unlikely. It's if you really enjoy that challenge of coming to work every day and solving really cool puzzles with really smart people. And if you, that's what you're in it for, I guarantee you'll get what you want. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. And it's like you said earlier, once you get past a certain point, more money doesn't mean more happiness. So you've got to be in it for some other reason. And um, Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist, basically published that report years ago that said, what is it, 75,000 US dollars per person. After that point, there is no meaningful uh, correlation between more income and happiness. So, I mean, there is science behind it, although the social sciences have been debunked many a time before. So we'll leave that one there. But um, on a... Uh, we talked a lot about building that culture, but you know there were some hairy times early on in Netflix's um, uh, a life around firing people when the market shifted around what you guys were doing, and and like you said, as as you're growing that company, you might let some lesser less than. A plus performers on the bus. And in Netflix's, Netflix's case, you ultimately had to winnow your stuff. Um, but that made you more lean um, and more focused in a way. But what, what was it like essentially to have to let some of your staff go, particularly those that were there from, from day one? It's, it's the worst thing in the world mm. uh, because you alluded a minute ago to how about being how I had this ability to convince people who were being put twice as much, take pay cuts, come work for me, yeah. and, you know, leave up these benefits, leave options behind. And that's done by finding people who are believers and they do and they come in and they work so hard and they stand side by side with you and you struggle and sweat and fight. And then you begin to achieve something. And then you get to this point where that person is not the right person for the next phase. Mm. And it's that exact same decision I had to make make about myself is you have to recognize that my first obligation is to make the company successful and that this is not the person to do it. And that the most honest thing I can do is tell them that. And it's really hard when you take the person and say, I'm bringing in um, somebody over you. 
Or worse, when you say, um, the things that I need going forward are skills that you don't have. You're a great person. You did an amazing job, but let's find a better place for you. Not in the company. Let's find a, me help you find a job where you can do all the great work you just did. Yeah. I'll write you a great recommendation. This person will be so delighted to have you. Mm-hmm. But that's, it's, it's sad and painful. Yeah. But yeah. It, ultimately, your obligation is to the people who are still there that to feel the best possible team you can. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, oh, this person sucks, but they're a good guy. So let's, we should keep them, shouldn't we? Yeah. That's, that, that's not fair to everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, I mean it's it's like that Netflix mantra, you know, we're a sports team, not a family. Uh, and if if you treat everyone as family, then you're never going to let them go, no matter how badly they perform. It's correct, and 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 some companies run like that, and that's all power to them. Just not how Netflix runs, nor how I'm wired to have a company, yeah. um, a company run. Yeah, and and again, it, it's just to reinforce, it's not like people. The, the great people stay and the bad people go. It's that things change. For example, when, when Netflix first got into streaming, um, we built our own streaming infrastructure, our own servers, our own head ends, our own distribution systems. And we hired the best people in the world at this and paid them extremely handsomely because they were the handful of people in the world who knew how to do this. Mm-hmm. But then, not too much long after that, a year, a year and a half, we realized Amazon is in a much better position than we are to do this. Um, and we moved all of our infrastructure responsibilities to Amazon. And now you have these people, and what are they supposed to do? Go work on search or go work on accounts payable? They'd be miserable, and they wouldn't do a very good job at it. And so it's only fair to say, listen, you built the best streaming in the world. People need that. It's just not us. And let's find you a home somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like that old uh, adage. If you uh, judge a goldfish by its ability to climb a wall, it will think it will live its whole life thinking it is stupid. Um, and, <laughs> and, and you said, uh, you know, you're, you're the master of the quote. This is really impressive. I've got to say, I love the. This is what happens after 365 podcast episodes. It just comes naturally. Um, but uh, something you talked about, Mark, was, you know, you're the right person for phase one, but not necessarily phase two. And in 2002, Netflix IPO'd for over 300 million US dollars. And a couple of years thereafter, you left the company. Why was that? It, it was it was an, an internal realization, really. You, you know, I, what I say a lot is that if you're lucky, you figure out a couple of things about yourself. And one of them is, what am I good at? But the other one is, what do I enjoy doing? And I had realized a long time ago that I love early stage problems. Mm. I love early stage companies. And uh, immodestly, I'm pretty good at it. And that what would make me the most happy is doing that. And Netflix, after its IPO, after the ability to hire these amazing people, after its problems were changing, they were problems that not only was I not good at, um, I didn't enjoy that much. Mm-hmm. And I decided, wow, I don't, I love this company. I love it. Like a, it's a child, you know, I want to fight for it, but I don't need to be here. And I think more importantly, I'll, I'll be more whole somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And gradually began working myself out of the job and, uh, off I went and 
it's been amazing. I mean, I'm the luckiest guy in the world now because I do get to do the things I love. I work exclusively on early stage companies and I have time for the balance in my life to spend time with the family, to do all my feeding the rat activities. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, absolutely love that. And um, I think it aligns with uh, Jim Collins's uh, hedgehog theory where he says, you know, if you're if you're coming up in high school or even in your 20s and you're struggling to determine what to do with your life, do something you're good at, something you enjoy and something that makes money. You get that alignment in that Venn diagram and you're going to be onto a good thing. You may not make money straight away, but you persist and you're more likely to succeed than others. Having said that, sometimes you do all the things right and you still get nowhere. And that's just the nature of, of life. Like you said, luck does play a role as well. But of those three Venn diagrams, if one of them is going to not be achieved, I'd probably rather have it be the money. Yeah. It has to be not achieved. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd rather end my life and go, ah, oh, I was happy my whole life with what I was doing. I didn't make much money as opposed to, wow, I made a shit pile, but how miserable am I? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it reminds me of this book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And the five regrets have nothing to do with making more money. They're all about spending more time doing the things you enjoyed, spending more time with family and, and wishing you lived life on your terms, not someone else's and not on your shareholders' terms either. So what is it that drives us into those things? It's, it's crazy. Everyone, I mean, people logically can understand that, but mm. still we get... We get sucked up. It's a, I guess it's a natural part of the human condition. It is. It is. I mean, I, I recently reread um, To Pixar and Beyond by Lawrence Levy, the CFO at Pixar from 1994 through to 2006. And, you know, he built that company up alongside uh, Steve Jobs and, and, and John Lasseter and others. And, and now he spent the last 13 years of his life trying to work on that problem. Uh, you know, how do we get people to think more about just doing stuff that's happy and contributing to the world rather than just making money. And I guess we, we do just mimic what we see, right? And we get, we fall into this social conditioning and whatnot, but keeping an eye on the yin and yang, trying to find that balance, I think is key. And that was something that you tried to do with um, Netflix in the early days. We want to maintain that Santa Cruz surf culture and not be just another tech company based in, you know, in the valley working crazy hours. We still want to see our family. And you were still very adamant about going home to your wife 5 p.m. on Tuesdays. That was date night every <laughs> single week, right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, culture is not what you say. It's what you do. And if you're really sincere about balance, you've got to show people actively that it's real by doing it yourself. Exactly. And and the same could be said about Netflix as well. Netflix is a fantastic, entertaining platform, but you could sit there and binge watch it for eight hours. Probably not going to do yourself very good. Watch some television, watch a movie you like, but get out there and do some Work you enjoy with people you enjoy being around, right? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Good advice. Um, fantastic, Mark. Look, I really enjoyed our time today. The book is called That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. There it is. It is on Amazon and all good bookstores. Um, people can also find you on Twitter at MB Randolph. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up? No, I, 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 no this has been great. Going to a lot of interesting directions. You know, if you have an idea, start. That's my advice in a nutshell. Perfect. If you want to read 310 pages, great. But if you hear nothing else, if you've got an idea, just do it. That's it. One word, just start. <laughs> Fantastic, Mark. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Great talking to you, Steve. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, 
a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.